Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in with us this morning at Oak City Church. Uh, A couple announcements before I get started. We've been talking about this the last few weeks, and we're going to mention it for a few more weeks, but we've changed our online giving platform from a company called Pushpay to a company called Tidely. And so um, if you've been giving online, we need you to to switch that over. We've had a few hiccups in our uh, implementing that, but the company's been incredibly responsive. We think this is going to be a great uh, solution for us. It's going to save us a about a percent of our budget in fees and um, let us put out an app and update our website in the next few weeks. So please do that. The IF gathering is coming up in just a few weeks. Um, You can find out information about that in the weekly email and also um, on the website. So uh, we'd love for you to sign up for that. Our next outdoor service we're planning is gonna be on September 20th. And so you'll get some information about that coming out um, soon. We are working through when do we get back into the building and how do we consider that? We just ask that you would pray that God would give us discernment with that. We have all sorts of information, just like you have all sorts of information. And so we're trying to sort through that and and make the best um, decision. And then we did have some technical difficulties last week with our live stream feed. Now, the internet had some problems on Sunday morning. There was an article on WRAL about how the internet was down. So we, you know, there's, we had limited ability to do something about that. But then even in our, in our um, broadcast, I failed to um, take into full consideration just how much taller Dan is than, than I am when I was coaching him through how to set up the camera for that background. And so that didn't quite work out as well as we thought it was going to. And it's not a big deal, but just we're trying to be great at everything we do. And so we'll be better. All right. This is our last week in a series in the book of Nehemiah. And I've loved, this maybe has been one of my favorite series. I've loved it. And I've heard a lot um, from a number of you guys. And I always appreciate that. Uh, Particularly now, Dan heard from a number of people last week and he appreciated that. And I have a buddy who, um, a pastor, who said this a few years ago. He said, what God is showing you and how God is changing you through the words we muster is all preachers really want to hear. And so um, just know that, like that matters. And muster is a good word, like that's kind of how we feel. And, and so this series for me has been great. And I think we've related to Nehemiah in a way. And God gives us characters to relate to. I think, um, you know, even Jesus comes down and he is, you know, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. And so it's, it's like a, a character. I mean, he's the son of God, but he did that so that he can, we can relate. We can know what he's like. And so God wants us to do that with these characters. And we've related to Nehemiah, this, this man. You know, he's raised uh, a thousand miles from his people's homeland, uh, but never been there. And they've been in exile. He, he achieves some success where they are. He becomes the cupbearer to the king. And so he becomes an important man with albeit with a limited scope of experience he's hears what's going on in jerusalem and his heart is broken for it and um, he's a godly man he brings that brokenness to the lord and says lord would you we don't deserve it but would you do something about this and the lord responds to him and says i will uh, but you're a part of that plan and so would you do something about it and he he gives up 
everything. He risks everything he had accomplished, leaves all that he knows, enters a field he has no experience in because he senses this is what God wants me to do. And it couldn't have gone any better than it did. Uh, he, he goes to Jerusalem. He raises, you know, the team. And, and it's a bunch of people that have never met him before and don't know whether or not he's worth following. He lays, it, lays out the, the project that they're going to, you know, take on. He uh, faces down opposition with faith and with courage. He perseveres through obstacles. And, and then they build the wall in record time. And they celebrate success really, really well. The people repent. There is a revival of sorts in Jerusalem. Um, he trusted God and God showed him favor. And all of that is what makes today's message and the final scene in the book of Nehemiah so shocking, uh, so difficult, um, and in some ways devastating. So in this last chapter, um, he, he goes back to Persia for some, he's in, he's the governor of Jerusalem for 12 years, and then he goes back to Persia for an unspecified amount of time, and he comes back to Jerusalem, and he finds that some things have just gone um, completely off the rails. So, he finds four things that have gone really, really wrong. Here's the first one. Um, they let the bad guy live in God's house. So, just follow me with this, but this is Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 4. It says, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers, of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they'd previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So Eliashib is, is probably not the same high priest Eliashib that got his hands dirty building the wall, but probably related to him and, because he's over a portion of the temple, the house of God, that's like a storehouse for the holy things that they use in the worship. But what he does, he's somehow related to Tobiah, and Tobiah, remember, is one of the bad guys. There's three bad guys named Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And he clears out a room so Tobiah can live. One of the guys that didn't want them to rebuild the walls and doesn't want Jerusalem and the Israelites to thrive, he clears out a room so Tobiah can live in the house of the Lord. I mean, and, and Nehemiah comes back and he's like, you did, wait, you did what? And he, um, he, you know, he goes a little crazy. He says, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber and I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And so he, this is like a reality TV show, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning. you got a camera with a light, and he's throwing all of this guy's furniture out of the temple. Like, what do you think you're doing? And he's like, we got to clean this room, get the Clorox and the Lysol, and get every, you know— any bit of him out of here and then get the holy things of God that are used in worship back in the room. And so that's the, the first of these four things. All right, the second one, uh, the people stop giving so the priests can't do their job. So this is verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So throughout the, throughout the Bible, um, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, God calls his people 
consistently to give of the first fruits, first fruits of their labor, of their harvest, of the income that God has blessed them with, to give that back to him for the work of his kingdom, and so that we will ultimately remember where it came from in the first place, that all that we have is a gift that has come from God, so he calls us to give the first of it back to him. And so in this temple context, there's a tithe of the harvest of the fields that goes to the Levites and to the singers, to the priests, to maintain the worship in the temple. And Nehemiah comes back, finds out they've stopped giving that to the, the temple, and so the Levites and the singers had to go by vocational and went back to the fields to farm so that they could, you know, so that they could eat. And so worship wasn't happening the way that it was supposed to happen. Just in like common terms, giving was down um, and not for any good reason, but the people were just neglecting to give to the work of the Lord and not obeying what God had told them to do and their consequences to that. So verse 11, uh, it says, I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together. I set them in their stations and all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine and the oil into the storehouses. And then he goes on. I appointed treasurers over the storehouses and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So he sets things up working the way that um, they're supposed to be working. So it's we'll do this a couple times a year. Say, hey, send out an email. Giving is down. And so we need you to pick it up and and. That's what he's doing, but probably in a little bit more extreme way. He reinstates the tithe and put them back in place. Now, at the end of this second, you know, thing that he finds that is not going the way that it's supposed to, he says this. He says, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for his service. Remember me concerning this, and don't wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. You can hear him being like, hey God, we got all this stuff done. Let's not let it go to waste. Like remember the things that I did because he sees them like eroding. You know, he sees things going in the wrong direction. While the cat was away, the mice decided to play. They've taken two steps forward, but now they're taking, you know, they're taking a step at least back. And he's probably thinking, do I have to be here 24-7 to keep this thing going? Because that doesn't seem sustainable or the way it's supposed to be. So that's the second thing. Um, they stopped bringing the tithe. The third thing, they stopped honoring the Sabbath. So verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold the food. So the Sabbath in the Old Testament is one of the Ten Commandments. It's like consistently God tells them, you're going to work for six days and the seventh day is mine. You're going to rest and you're going to worship and you're going to remember me and focus on me and you're not going to do the normal things. We don't I've, we've preached on this before, like we don't celebrate the Sabbath in the same way. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, and yet we're called the Sabbath, and we need to find rhythms of Sabbath because we're not supposed to be working all the time, and times when we remember the Lord and focus on the Lord and delight in the Lord, and we, we give up working and worrying and all those things. 
for them, though, it's just a different thing. Like, they're called to specific rules about the Sabbath and doing no work. I, uh, years ago now, was, was in Israel and was in Jerusalem on a Sabbath. And so it's Friday night, you know, into Saturday is the Sabbath. And that Friday night, we're in our hotel, and I'm coming down to dinner, and I get in the elevator. It's like a six-floor hotel, and we were on the fourth floor and so I get in and I press the button for the first floor I'm on the fourth floor and the doors closed and the elevator doesn't go down it goes up and it goes up one floor we're on the fifth floor it opens I'm pressing the button it closes and I'm like what's going on and it doesn't go down again it goes up to the sixth floor and then it opens and it closes and then it and then it goes down but it only goes down to the fifth and so finally I get out of the elevator I get in another elevator that works and I go down to the bottom and I tell these guys hey your elevator's broken they're like no that's a sabbath elevator and so they they still do this they have elevators that go up a floor, up a floor, up a floor, you know, open, close every time, down a floor, so that you do not have to press a button when you get on the elevator. That's what the Sabbath has come to mean for Jewish people. I don't think that's a good interpretation of the Sabbath, probably. Um, but, but in this context, what they're doing is just treating it like every other day. And Nehemiah, it drives Nehemiah um, crazy. So he, in verse 17, he says this, I, I confronted the nobles. Uh, and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers act in this way and did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So he's saying, listen, this is the type of thing that led God to send us into exile. It's why I was raised in Babylon and my family has been there for 150 years. And now he's letting us come back into our land by his grace towards us. And you guys are doing the same thing that got us kicked out in the first place. Like, do you guys not get it? And you can, like, you can sense his mounting frustration as this um, passage goes on. Uh, these verses aren't up there, but it's verse 19. He says, as soon as it began to grow dark and the gates of Jerusalem, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And when they were building the wall, they put doors on the gates for security, but also so that they could wall off the city for the Sabbath and there would be no commerce. And so he just makes sure that happens. He said, I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. So there are some people that are used to just doing business on the Sabbath, and they don't believe that this is going to stick. Even with Nehemiah saying, no, we're not doing any business on the Sabbath. They're hanging out outside the gates thinking they're going to give in and just go back to life as usual. He says, but I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. So he basically says, hey, get out of here. I'm serious about this. Leave or I will beat you. And it says from then on, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And so they believed him. I mean, they looked at Nehemiah and thought, man, that old guy's a little bit crazy. We should get out of here. And that's what they did. And so he, he reinstitutes that by his, the force of his will, you know, that they would honor the Sabbath. Now, um, at the end of that, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves, come guard the gates, keep the Sabbath day holy. And says again to God, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So again, God, remember, and now it's, it's like more about me. Remember me, 
even if they're not going to fall in line, remember me and the things that I tried to do according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Uh, he, he sees all this good work slipping away, and it's like he's starting to worry that it didn't matter at all in the first place. Like it's a little midlife crisis And I've said this a few times during this series, that the project is not about a wall. It's about a people. It's not about building a wall. It's about a people. He responded to a crisis. They rebuilt a wall, but ultimately was renewing their identity as the people of God, and the wall allowed them to do that. But he leaves, and he comes back, and all of a sudden, the people don't look so new anymore. Like, whatever revival took place, it doesn't seem like it's sticking uh, with the people. And so here's the fourth one. The Jewish people start marrying people from the nations around them. So um, this is verse, verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews uh, who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And so they're losing their identity as the people of Yahweh because they're marrying people that don't believe in Yahweh. And he mentions the language, and I don't want you to read too much into that, this with what's going on right now in, like in our culture, but he, if you, when you lose your language, you lose your culture. And so he notes that some of their kids don't even know how to speak Hebrew. And that's just, I, don't, I only know really one language, so I don't know that, but I've heard enough people say that over the years that I buy it, that you lose your language, you lose your culture. Like your, your culture and your language are tied together, and he knows that, and he sees um, what's happening. Now, this, this um, you know, prohibition from marrying folks that are outside of your faith is throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament more than it's in the New Testament, but it's also um, in the New Testament. And so I want to spend a minute on this because I know how it comes across. It comes across as, well, yeah, we can't marry outside our faith because we're better than them and they are not worthy of us. It comes across as really judgmental. And, um, and these are honestly in ministry. Some of the toughest conversations I've had is a few couples that have asked me to marry them. And this is really the, 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 maybe the only question I really press on before agreeing to marry a couple is, are you both believe in Jesus or do you both not if you don't both don't then that's okay but if you if one of you does and one of you doesn't like the the Bible says that's not a good idea and it's not a pejorative thing it's a really practical thing like God doesn't it's not judgmental God created everybody in his image with inherent dignity and equality God loves the whole world enough that he sent Jesus to die you know for all the nations he sent his his church to the nations with the gospel so that it can say in Revelation, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is before the throne of God. God didn't choose the people of Israel in the Old Testament because they were the greatest. It says he chose them because they were the least and because his glory would be shown the most because they were the weakest. That's why they were chosen. And so if, you know, God, you know, someone believes in him, it's not because they were so great. That's the whole gospel, you know, is it's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done for us and a humility that comes along with this. God makes a way in the Old Testament for people to become a part of the nation of Israel through faith. Ruth, is a, she's from Moab, and she gets a book of the Bible named after her. So all that to say this is not a judgmental command. It's a very practical command. And so I'm going to go on, and, and I'll demonstrate that in the next verse. So 
Verse 25, and this is, you know, kind of getting out of that topic and back into the main thing for a second. But he says, I confronted them, I cursed them, I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. This sounds to me like a therapy session where they're like, okay, Nehemiah, so what happened next? Well, you know, I talked to him about it. Did you just talk to him about it? Well, I might have cursed a little bit. Is that all, Nehemiah? Okay, I hit him a little bit, okay? And what else, Nehemiah? Okay, I pulled some of their hair out. Like, he's just losing it, you know? That's it, he's really, really angry at this point. But then he says, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like Solomon. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Um, And this is why that command is there. Everyone worships something. We all worship something, and we probably worship some complicated formula of things, of biblically what we would call idols, you know? Uh, We devote ourselves to things. We give them our time. We give them our energy, our money, our hope, and we expect that they are going to give us life in return. If two people are married and their lives are ultimately devoted to two separate things, then that's going to lead to some really practical consequences difficulties, complications in the way they live out their life. I mean, I just a minute ago talked about how God throughout the Bible tells his people to bring the first fruits of their harvest, of their income to him um, for the work of the kingdom and also to remind us that it all came from him in the first place. Well, if two people are married, and I'm probably stepping on toes right now, if two people are married and one person's like, well, God told me to bring the first fruits of our income back to him and the other person isn't, doesn't believe in Jesus or isn't following this God, then that's going to be a really practical complication in their marriage. If you're raising children and one of you wants to raise your children in the training and instruction of the Lord, according to the commands of the Bible, and the other person doesn't buy that, then you're going to have some really practical complications um, in your marriage. And nothing will create conflict between you like disagreements on how to raise your children because of the obligation that you feel like to do right by your kids. So that, it's a really pragmatic, practical command that he gives us. Jesus says you can't serve two gods. You're going to serve um, God or you're going to serve mammon. You're going to serve money, you're the world. Uh, and if you're married, when you get married, you become one flesh. And if you're one flesh trying to serve two gods, there are going to be complications with that. And, and it's going to be hard. And at a level, I think the command is a protection not for Christians, but for non-Christians, because in a bad marriage, the idea that they're going to get of the person that's following Jesus is probably not going to be a good one in the crucible um, that marriage can become at times. So it's pragmatic. It's pragmatic. Now, this goes on in verse 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who is the son-of-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So a lot, this is now Eliashib, the high priest. One of his grandsons marries the daughter of one of the bad guys, Sanballat, who didn't want the whole thing to be done. So now this is all complicated together. He says, therefore, I chased him from me. And then he says, um, remember me, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so remember, remember them. <laughs> like, it's not me anymore. Like, deal with them however you want to, God, because I can't, I can't control it anymore. 
And in the book ends with him saying, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. I provided the wood for the offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. I did everything I could. And then the book ends like this. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. There's an air of resignation to that in, in the way that I read this of like, I've done everything I can and I can't do anything more. And it's kind of a depressing way to end what's really a positive book. Now, this um, takes me to some other places in the Bible. So it reminds me of Moses um, at, when he goes up on Mount Sinai. So God has rescued the Israelites from Egypt. He's parted the Red Sea. They've come through, you know, he saved them. Uh, and, and then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and to establish a covenant with this God, their relationship. And, and it's, while he's, you know, as soon as he's gone, the people are going to Aaron and saying, hey, make for us a golden calf so we have something to worship. And Aaron does it. And Moses comes back down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And like Nehemiah, kind of loses his mind. Like, what? what do you think you're doing? And he smashes the Ten Commandments and he grinds up that golden calf, puts it in their water and makes them drink it, which I'm, I've never studied that. I'm not sure what that's about, but it's really intense, you know? <laughs> and so it reminds me of that. It reminds me of Gideon. So Gideon's a story in the book of Judges, and God uses Gideon to provide deliverance for the Israelites from the Midianites, from this great enemy, and so they have this great victory, and it's great, but then things get weird, and the people want to make Gideon their king, and he's like, that's not a good idea, but you know, melt down a bunch of your jewelry, making me an ephod, and there's a form of worship in that. And in the next generation, one of Gideon's son kills the rest of Gideon's sons, and it's super tragic. Like, it goes from good to bad um, real fast. David has all these victories uh, in the Bible, and God, he's a man after God's own heart, and God uses him. Um, but then his son Absalom rebels against him, and then his son Solomon drifts away from the faith, and then two generations after David, the kingdom is split. Like, it goes from good to bad uh, fast. Uh, it makes me, you know, Genesis. God creates Adam and Eve, has them in the Garden of Eden, but then Cain kills Abel. Like, things can go bad fast. It makes me think of, in our day, like, pastors, and I probably am more in touch with this stuff than you are, and maybe it's always happened, but now with media we and the Internet, we find out about it more often, but, you know, pastors that just end up going in the wrong direction, and this isn't really the Jerry Falwell thing. I don't know much about him, but it doesn't, I don't know that he was ever faithfully whatever. And that whole thing is tragic for the church and for everybody and infuriating really. But, but pastors who start really well and sincerely following the Lord and seeking his kingdom and building a church, but then have some type of, you know, moral failure, whether that be a sexual moral failure or power control, which those things are probably all the same at some level type of thing. And things end up going really bad after God has done something that's really good. Uh, honestly, it made me think about, like, even kids that, you know, go to camp. I didn't grow up going to church camp and um, coming back, but I was a youth pastor for a while, and so the kids would go to camp, and then they would come back, and they'd, they'd repent. They'd want to get rid of some stuff, you know, and so back in that day, it was burning their CDs, like a bunch of you probably thinking, I remember burning my CDs, and so that, and that was good, you know, but a couple months later, somehow those CDs were back. It's like they rose from the ashes like the phoenix, you know, <laughs> and it's that type of thing, and really, it's like each one of us, and every one of us that's sincerely trying to follow Jesus and, and pursue him and become more like him and change, you know, and seek his kingdom, we experience 
periods of change and victory and repentance and like a tenderness towards him. But then, but then it doesn't last forever. And then things change and, um, and we, go, we go back. You know, and if we're honest, we're, we're not as far along as we thought we would be at this point. And we're a little bit disappointed with it. And that's the reality check at the end of Nehemiah and at the end of a lot of stories in the Bible um, if, you, if you pay attention to them. We've related, like I said, we, we relate to him as a character. We've related well to Nehemiah, you know. We can look at the crisis we're in and say, how have we responded to this crisis? That second message, are we confident in our own competence or are we confident in the competence of God and the help he provides us? And how is that reflected in the way that we pray? And that matters. Are we willing to follow a God-sized plan for our life? Or have we settled for like a, a me-sized plan uh, for my life? Are we a part of the team that God wants us to be a part of when it comes to people that disagree with us? Like we shouldn't be looking to pick a fight, but we should, you know, have a godly confidence that, that allows us not to back down. And is that how we respond to what's going on around us? When it comes to persistence, is our view of God um, bigger than our view of the circumstances that we're going through right now? We can relate to that. And the last one, you know, do we celebrate our, do we take time to celebrate the good things that God is doing? Or does our anxiety over the next thing just drive everything about our lives? We can relate to all those things. And so how do we relate to this, this last chapter? And I think we relate to it. And m maybe the way that I put it in context of the, of the book is that people are harder to build than walls. People are harder to build than walls. You know, you can, you can fix up a bunch of bricks and hang some doors in 52 days and get that thing done. But the change that needed to happen inside the people, it's harder um, to get that stick. You can't control that as much. It reminds me a little bit of Jesus um, when he's talking to the religious people in his time, the Pharisees. And at one point, he just gives them the business. And he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You know, you can paint a tomb on the outside and it looks great, but inside you're still full of dead men's bones. And it's, it's easy for us to, you know, to get some things straight on the outside and settle for that and not really have the things fixed on the inside um, that need to be fixed. And so I'll just make a few points out of that. One is that change is a long, a hard, and oftentimes slow process. And so we need to do all the things that Nehemiah like leads us towards. Uh, we need to respond to a crisis. And when God points out like your sin, the one he wants to work on next, that is a crisis that's worth being responded to. We need to trust in the Lord and say, create in me a clean heart and you have to do that, God. And I'll work with you, but you need to do it. We need to persist through opposition and obstacles. We need to celebrate the wins, but we need to keep it in perspective. You know, the wins we experience here are part of are like battles in a larger war, you know? And so we can win that battle or lose that battle but it, there's, there's a bigger battle, a bigger war that's going on. And, um, and we know because of what the Bible coaches us through that God on the cross, Jesus won the ultimate battle. He won the war. Um, his kingdom is going to become a reality on earth as it is in heaven at some point. But we don't know the timing of that. And so we're waiting in this in-between, like the already but the not yet kingdom. And... Um, and we need to live in light of that. Uh, I, I used to quote a couple weeks ago by Dallas Willard. He said, instead of counting Christians, um, we should weigh them. And so he's metaphorically saying, like, 
following Christ could be looked at as like gaining some weight, growing, uh, maturing, and so you become a, a weightier as a Christian. And that takes time. You know, often we're in our culture, we're talking about losing weight, not gaining weight, but either one of them uh, takes a bit of time, and, and it's slow, and it happens from the inside and not from the outside, you know, and, and so that's what change is like um, with Christ, and so it can take some time. The second thing with that is that know that a lot of change is needed for us to really be like Jesus, and I think this is a big sign of maturity is, you know, growing to understand a lot more needs to change than you initially thought needs to change. And your understanding of how much needs to change like grows as you grow in Christ. Our faith can often breed an arrogance where it's supposed to breed a humility. And so we can experience change in a few ways. And they initially, it can be some kind of external things. And then we can look at who we used to be or we can look at us compared to the people around us. And, and based on the rules that we've made deemed the most important rules, then we establish that we're better than somebody. And that's why like the not marrying outside your faith comes across as a judgmental thing because we can do that a lot of times. And, and really we do that out of our insecurity and out of a lack of depth of understanding of the gospel and the grace that God shows us. And we don't need to compare anything to anything because we needed his grace so desperately and that's all we need. But it's hard to grow into an understanding of the fullness of our need for the grace of God. Dan mentioned a survey last week where they were surveying self-declared Christians and, and talking to them about how they get into heaven and they're talking about their works and not the work of Jesus. And like over half of them thought, well, it's based on what I do. Well, that's, that's anti-gospel. That's a total misunderstanding of the gospel. But we, this is Nehemiah. We tend to default back to, oh yes, the grace of Jesus. But then we default back to, okay, but now I got it. And that's not how it works. Like we got to grow into a deeper and deeper understanding of our need for the grace of Jesus. I, in times past, have said this a lot, that I feel like when you come to faith in Christ, what you understand of your sin is like the tip of an iceberg. And so they say 10% of an iceberg is above the surface and 90% is below. And you see the 10% and you're, I mean, if you come to faith in Christ and understand the gospel, you're, you feel badly about that. Like you want to do something about that, realize you can't. You're like, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. But you think that's it. And Jesus, part of the growing in your relationship with him is him saying, well, there's a little bit more to it. Like, here's some scuba gear. We're going to go underneath the surface. And then you see like the 90% and you grow in your understanding of that. And you think, man, my sin is more than I thought it was. But you have to realize along with that, the grace of God in Christ was a lot more than I thought it was. And that's not going to breed arrogance. It is going to breed humility. And that is what it is to put on weight as a Christian and to mature. And I think that's where this book leads us. You know, another m metaphor in the Bible that's used for God is light. And the closer you get to the light, the more your flaws are exposed and the better you see them. And that's, that's maturity. Um, I, think about, I think about heaven more, more than I ever have. Like I've been driven to that the last few years. And, and one of the main things I think is that he is going to have to change me a lot. Like what I feel, um, what I think, what I want, what makes me happy and what makes me sad, what I say and what I do. Like those things, when I really consider them, aren't in line with what I understand about the character of God. And for it to make sense, for me to be in the presence of God for eternity, he's going to have to change 
those things, and he's going to have to change them. Uh, he's going to have to change them a lot. And so I find myself asking, am I prepared for that kind of change to happen? And then I think, well, if I'm prepared for it then, am I prepared for it now? And I'm I humble enough and open to how he may want to change me in ways that I don't want to be changed, you know? Honestly, sometimes I think that maybe God quietly and gently lets us experience the consequences of like deep patterns of sin without papering them over or sparing us all the earthly consequences of them so that we'll more deeply realize the depth of our need for him and develop a greater willingness to change and a longing, a longing over time for that change. And so that's the second thing, that know that the change is more than you thought it was. And the last one is that some things won't change until we get to heaven. And so that puts a perspective on our life that I think is a mark of maturity, of growing in Christ. There's a verse from uh, Corinthians where Paul says, If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If in this life, or in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And it's just, it's a weird because I think genera- a couple, a generation or two ago, the church talked about heaven more than earth, you know, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. But now I think we flip that and we, we talk just about what Christ means in our life now, but we don't, I don't preach enough of spending time putting perspective on, on heaven. And Paul says, like, you're to be pitied if you don't think about what this means for the next life and this life in light of the next life. I was listening to um, someone talk about um, a a section out of Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis talks about how you're going to get to a place in life, and maybe it's a little bit like Nehemiah, where you realize the things that you have, that you've been after, that you've acquired, they're not going to satisfy you the way that you thought they were. And so whether that be, um, you know, your marriage, uh, your friends, your job, your stuff, your body, your kids, uh, yourself, um, they just don't, they're not doing what you thought they would, you know. I, I think you get to that place with God where you think, and it's not God that doesn't satisfy you, but your ability to comprehend him, like the things that you know you can't understand, uh, the limitations on your current relationship with him, um, you get to a point that it leaves you wanting, you know. Like read the Psalms. I think that's, that's a lot of what's in them. And so Lewis goes and says you have a choice to make at that point um, because you get to that point where you realize, oh, they're not doing it. And you, one decision you can make is to switch them out. So your marriage isn't doing it, so you switch it out, you know. Um, your job isn't doing it, so you switch it out. Your stuff, um, you're, you can't really do that with your kids. Don't do that with your kids. I'm probably watching this with my kids right now, so this is awkward. But, but you switch stuff out, and if you do that, you're going to become driven, you know. Um, but you're also going to become controlling and probably a bit obnoxious. <laughs> and not find the thing. So that's one option. He said, another option is just to kind of give up on being satisfied in life. Um, a little nihilistic, I think. And, but then you become a little bit, you know, lazy and unmotivated and maybe even despairing, you know, and depressed. He says the third option is you can be- begin living this life in light of what the Bible says about the next life. And I think that's maturity, is driving us to that place. You plan for heaven while not giving up on earth. And so the section from this book, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from it. He says, The Christian says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. 
men and women feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep in myself, or alive in myself, the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. I think Paul puts that this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We long for it. That's maturity. Uh, for in this hope we were saved, and now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I think that's where Nehemiah leads us. I'm not sure Nehemiah demonstrates that towards the end of the book, but I think that's where he pushes us in our relationship with Christ. That can be difficult. It can be difficult, but man, it can be hopeful, and it can put things into proper perspective, and ultimately, it can lead us to worship. So my, my hope and my prayer is that's what it does for me, and, and that's what it does for you. Father, I'm thankful for this book. I'm thankful for Nehemiah and his life, Lord. I'm thankful um, for all the things that he went through were so positive, God, and, and the example that he is to us in those things about what it is to follow you and to persist and to celebrate and all that, Lord. Man, but I'm also thankful for the end of the book, that this isn't it, that the earthly victories aren't the ultimate victories, that there is, especially in our day, man, there's something greater to look forward to, uh, and your kingdom is so much better than any kingdoms that we can, we can manufacture, even the ones that we manufacture pursuing you on this earth, God. May we look forward to the day um, when our bodies are redeemed. May we look forward to the change that you'll bring about in us to make us who we have the potential to be, who you created us to be, and for us together to be the people uh, that you called us to be and to live with you. And, for eternity. Father, we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.